Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. This month, we would, we would cover a series that I have titled, Reboot, Reset, Restart. And um, this, this series is designed to help us kickstart this new year in a way that gives us ensures that we'll have a better year this year than in previous years, or at least that we'll have a good year. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Um, if, uh, if, if you're wondering where Psalm 119 is, Psalm 118 is in the dead center of the Bible. So if you open up your Bible to the dead center and then go right one chapter, you're going to run into Psalm 119. Now, when you get there, uh, some of you are going to be sorely disappointed because you're going to look at that, that psalm, Psalm 119, and you're going to count the verses. And it has 176 verses, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, the preacher's going to read this whole psalm, and then he's going to preach. We're going to be here at 4.30. No, we're not. I, I, you'll be happy to know I'm only going to read a few of the verses. I'm going to read from verse 105 to verse 112. Verses 105 through verse 112 of Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. The longest chapter in the scriptures is about the scriptures themselves. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of the Bible. It has 176 verses that are evenly divided up into 22 sections. Each section has eight verses each. There are 22 sections, one section for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Our English alphabet has 26 letters. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And so when you look at Psalm 19, the 22 sections, the 22 eight-verse sections correspond to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. If you and I were able to read Hebrew, we would be able to look at section one, the first eight verses of Psalm 119, and we would notice that the first letter of the first word of every verse begins with the letter a uh, in Hebrew. It does, not, it does not translate into English that way, but in Hebrew, the first letter of the first word of, the, of each verse, each of the eight verses begins with the letter A. The second section, 
the first letter of the first word of each of those eight verses begins with the letter B. The third section, they begin with the letter C and so on until by the time you get to the last section of Psalm 119, all the first words of each verse begin with the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It took some time to do this. It took being intentional. 176 verses with all of them categorized into 22 very neat sections in such a way that the first word on the first uh, of the first word of each verse in each of those sections has the exact same begins with the exact same letter that took time and the reason for that intricate design is that this psalm is meant not only to talk about the scriptures and the scriptures are its theme Uh, It uses several different synonyms to describe the scriptures. For instance, in the verses I read to you, the word word, your word is a lamp unto my feet, refers to the scriptures. Laws refers to the scriptures. Laws, plural, refers to the scriptures. Verse 110, precepts refers to the scriptures. Uh, Statutes. Verse 111, and decrees, verse 112, all those words refer to the scriptures. And every section, all the 22 sections, talk about the scriptures. And this, this psalm is designed so that, so that not only is it talking about the scriptures, but it is relating to us that the scriptures are, there's far more in them than what meets the eye. For instance, some of you did not know that Psalm 119 is an acrostic where each of the letters begins the same in each of the sections because we can't see that in English. So when we read it in English especially, we can get a lot from Psalm 119 and yet still not realize that there's a lot more there than what we see. The scriptures are the highlight of this psalm. And so when I think about beginning a new year, especially when we, when we put together the, the, the title, Reboot, Reset, Restart, where do we start to restart? Where do we begin to reboot? Uh, where do we set our feet for the purpose of resetting our lives in 2019? And I think the place to start for those of us who are people of Christian faith is to start with the instructions. And that's the title of this message. Start with the instructions. The instructions are the scriptures. The the, the instructions are the Bible. Because the Bible is important to us. Uh, We would not have Christianity. We would not have uh, uh, the faith that we enjoy and that means so much to us without the scriptures. The Bible is important. And it's important for a number of reasons. First off, it's important because the Bible is God's word. It's not just anybody's word. It is God's word. And of all the billions of books that have been written and published and printed in the history of book writing, there is only one book among all those billions of books that deserves the title, The Word of God. And that is the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, 
joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is the word of God. Now, John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That word, word, refers to Jesus, the word. But, but I'm not talking about Jesus, the living word. Here I'm talking about the Bible, the written word. And there's a distinction that needs to be made. Second, the Bible is important because it points us to Christ. The entire scriptures are designed to point us to Christ. He is the ultimate goal of the scriptures. And so whatever we glean from the scriptures, whatever meanings we come to understand in our study of the scriptures, if they don't lead us to Jesus, we, then they are, they're incomplete studies. In John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus again is confronted with the religious leaders. They don't like him. They oppose him. They talk about the fact that, uh, uh, that they don't believe that he follows the Old Testament scriptures. And so here's what Jesus said in verse, John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you study the scriptures diligently. That's a good thing. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's true and that's a good thing. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, he said. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that all scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, all of it points to Jesus. It finds its fulfillment in leading people to Jesus. So the Bible is important because it's God's word. It's important because it points us to Christ. And third, it is important because it gives us guidance for life. The Bible is an owner's manual for our lives. It is God's uh, love letter to us to tell us not only how to be saved by receiving Christ, but also how to live once we have received Christ. In Paul's final letter, final recorded letter in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that would be you and me, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is a guideline for our lives. And so if you want a better life, if you and I want 2019 to be the best year of our lives thus far, one of the best places to start, the best place to start is with the instructions, the Bible, because the Bible is important. Now, there are four imperatives that I think we need to follow with regard to the Bible. What do we need to do with the Bible? Yeah, we can, we can say, okay, I, I agree it's the word of God and I, I, I agree it points me to Jesus. I agree it gives us guidelines for life. But what do we need to do with it? Well, there are four things. First of all, we need to respect the Bible. Respect it. This is not Shakespeare's word. This is not John Grisham's word. This is not Nora Roberts's word. This is not somebody else's word. This is not a newspaper's word. This is the word of God. And and as such, we need to respect the word of God in a way that we wouldn't give respect to any other work of words. Second, we need to read the Bible. Most people in the world, I mean, even folks who aren't Christian who know about the Bible, they respect the Bible. The majority of people in our world respect the Bible. But among those who respect the Bible, there is a minority of us who read the Bible. 
And we, we, we certainly need to go beyond respecting the Bible. We need to read the Bible and we need to read it frequently. We need to read it, I would say, daily. You don't have to read the Bible daily to be saved, but if you're saved, it will help us in living if we read the Bible daily. If someone said to me, uh, Jimmy, I respect the Bible. I believe it's the word of God, but I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't read it very often. My response is going to be, with all due respect, you don't respect the Bible. Because if you respect the Bible, you'll read the Bible. And third, not only respect and read the Bible, but study the Bible. A majority of people in the world respect the Bible, but a minority of those who respect the Bible read the Bible. And a minority of us who read the Bible go the next step and study the Bible because that takes work. And we don't like work. Not that kind of work. But not only do we need to study the Bible, but we need to apply the Bible to life. You see, God gave us his word so that we could learn from it and apply its principles to our lives so that our lives can be what he meant for them to be, so that our lives can not only survive, but we can thrive in this chaotic world in which we live. Four imperatives. But how do you study the Bible? I, I, there, are, there are tons of books written on how to study the Bible. I have people come up to me and say, you, do you, how, how am I supposed to study the Bible? I, I read the Bible and I can't get anything. How do I study the Bible? And granted, the Bible, some parts of the Bible are fun to read, exciting to read, and some of them, man, take Leviticus, for instance. Man, I, I, I would rather, I think I would rather eat raw chicken livers than to have to read Leviticus. And I don't even like chicken livers anyway. My wife loves fried chicken livers. Me, no, God didn't mean for liver to be eaten in any fashion. He meant for banana pudding to be eaten in any fashion. Some parts of the Bible are hard. So how do you study the Bible? So I, wanna, I want to give you very quickly uh, some considerations to make for studying the Bible. If you really want to study the Bible, if you want to be serious about the Word of God this year, let me give you these, these, uh, these principles. First of all, if you want to study the Bible seriously, you need to study the Bible from a historical standpoint. Look at it through the lens of the history that is the background of that book in which you're reading. If you're, if you're deciding to read through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, study the city of Ephesus, study the letter to the Ephesians, and, and ask certain questions about the historical background of that city because every Bible book came forth out of some situation, some problem, some struggle that God saw and he addressed in his word. So every Bible book is meant to address a historical situation. And if we divorce that Bible book from its historical situation, then we will also glean from it an incorrect understanding. Now, studying the Bible from a historical perspective means to look at the background of the passage, the historical background of the book, and you ask these kind of questions. Who is the human author of this book? We know God inspired it, but who is the human author? Now, we won't always be able to find out who the human author is, but sometimes we can. Where was the book written? The Gospel of Mark? 
which is about Jesus and Jesus in Palestine, especially in Jerusalem and Galilee. But the book of Mark was written in Rome. At what time was the book written? And what time period does the book describe? Again, let's take Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel was written sometime during the decade of the 70s. So it was written in the 70s, but it described a period of time that ranged from 25 to 35 AD. So there is a 50-year 40 to 50 year difference between the time it was written and the time it describes. That can make a difference as to how you understand what Matthew says. Who are the original recipients of the message? Matthew wrote to Jewish Christians. Luke wrote to uh, Gentile people. Mark wrote to anybody and everybody except exclusively or specifically he wrote to Jewish Christians who lived around the city of Rome because they were being persecuted. Who were the recipients? What circumstances prompted the writing of the book? Paul wrote Corinthians because they were split every which way but loose. They were divided over preacher following. They were divided over immorality in the church. They were divided over spiritual gifts. Why was this book written? It'll help you understand what it was about. What, are the major, what is the major theme of the book? What are some of the key verses of the book? What are some of the major issues addressed in the book? Study the historical background. In one place in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how uh, disgraceful it is for a uh, man to have long hair uh, and uh, how disgraceful it is for a woman to cut her hair. What's he talking about? I can look around here and I can see that some of the ladies here don't agree with Paul because you have long hair and some of the guys don't agree with Paul because you have no hair. What was Paul talking about? If you study the historical background, you'll see exactly why he told them them to do exactly that. But what it means for us today is something totally different. Study the Bible from a historical standpoint. Second, study the Bible from a literary standpoint. A literary standpoint means what kind of literary type is this particular passage? Not all of them are the same. And so a literary standpoint asks the following questions. What type of literature is being used in this passage? Is it poem or is it a letter? Is it a storyline or is it a law? Is it a list? What is it? Is it apocalyptic literature that has all kinds of symbols that represent something else other than what they literally stand for? And how does this genre, this literary type, impact this passage? If you read from the Psalms, all of the Psalms are poems. They're songs. We don't have the music, but we have the lyrics. They're poems. The, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians is a letter. You, if you and I pull out a psalm and try to understand it the same way that we would understand Paul's letter to the Colossians, we will misunderstand what Paul's saying in the psalm because the psalms as poetry are meant to be understood differently than letters, which is Paul's letter to the Colossians. And so study the Bible from a historical standpoint, study it from a literary standpoint, and study it from a uh, contextual standpoint. A contextual standpoint means looking at the passage within the context of what comes before and after it, as well as the uh, significant words within that passage. And you ask these kind of questions. How do the passages before this one I'm looking at 
and the ones after it affect the meaning of this text. I can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which if you look at it, we all know it as the love chapter. Uh, we hear it read more often than anywhere else at weddings. And yet, if you look at the chapter before it and the chapter after it, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, you realize that the love chapter, the love in that chapter is not about marriage. And it's not even about uh, uh, our love for other people in our family. It's about the love that should be exhibited within the fellowship of a church. Love within a church fellowship is what it's about. How does the context deal with the passage? How does it impact the passage? What are the verb tenses? What are the genders? When Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, the new has come. Did he mean that only men could be saved? Most of us believe Paul was talking in a gender-neutral form there. A literary, a context, a historical, and then a cultural standpoint. Study the Bible from a cultural standpoint. What that means is we consider, now stay with me here, we consider how if you're looking at a certain Bible book or a certain passage, and you're reading that passage and studying it, you want to know how were the, was the author of that passage, how was he limited by, inhibited by, impacted by, restricted by the cultural accepted mores of the day? And you say, wait a minute, the Bible wasn't impacted by the, by the cultural norms of the day. Oh, yes, it was. There were things that Paul could not say because he knew that if he said them, he wouldn't get anybody to listen to him about some of the more important issues of life, such as salvation through Christ. And so there were things he wanted to say, but he, he disciplined himself not to say them. For instance, let's take the subject of slavery. Now, you and I, at least I hope you and I believe that slavery, the owning of one human being by another human being is immoral, unethical, unrighteous, ungodly, unchristian. It's just flat wrong. It is not only wrong now, it was wrong in the 1850s when so many slaves were being held here in the southeast of the United States. It was wrong in the 1700s when slaves were being held all over our country. And it was wrong during the first century when the, most of the Bible books, if not all of them, were written. And yet, the Apostle Paul never calls for the abolition of slavery. He never condemns slavery. He did know about it because he would write passages on how to manage slaves. On the relationships that slaves and slave masters ought to have. Not only that, but one of the books that he wrote, he wrote to a man named Philemon. Philemon was a member of the church at Colossae who also was a slave owner. And the reason Paul was writing to him was Paul was sending a fellow by the name of Onesimus who was a runaway slave of Philemon's. He had escaped slavery. Paul sends, he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon to be his slave again. How can Paul do that? There are only one or, one or two, there are only two options you can go, go with. You, one of them is, well, Paul believed in slavery then. He believed it was godly. And back in the 1850s, there were Baptist preachers standing in places just like this, similar to this, and they would use the Bible to defend slavery, even though it was indefensible. 
Did Paul believe in slavery? Did he believe it was wrong? I cannot believe that he did. But what I do believe is that he wanted to condemn it. He wanted to call for its abolition. If Paul had had said what he wanted to say to Philemon, he'd have said, Philemon, look, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, but you need to free him and you need to free all of your slaves. Now forever. That's what he wanted to say, I believe. But he couldn't say it. Why couldn't he? Because the Colossian church would have never listened to another word he said. See, I can empathize with that. There are things that I would love to say to you, but I can't say them because I know that you're not ready to receive them. That's, that's not a slight against you. It's just the way it is. Every pastor in every church, not only in America, but in this world, there are only certain, certain things that he or she can say and get away with it. Paul was the same way. So when we look at the Bible, we need to study it also from a cultural standpoint because what he said about slavery was limited by what the people would allow him to to say about it. He would love to have said more, but he couldn't. And I will tell you that slavery is not the only issue in the Bible that cultural mores had an impact on what they were able to say. Now that's controversial, but you can check me on it. And then finally... Study the Bible from a theological standpoint. Every writer of the Bible had a purpose for writing. And God had a purpose for using that writer to write what was written. The Holy Spirit moved upon him, and that person would write as the Holy Spirit moved them to write. Even though the Holy Spirit gave them freedom of using their own vocabulary and using their own personality, that's the reason different Bible books read so differently. If, the, if God had dictated, had mechanically dictated the Bible to us, every book of the Bible would read exactly the same with the exact same vocabulary, but they don't. They're different because God, although he inspired the writers, he gave them the freedom to write using their own personality and vocabulary and their own mannerisms. But they all had a theme, and that theme had something to do with God. And so there are questions we need to ask from a theological perspective. What is the theme of the passage I'm studying? What, why did the writer want to develop this particular theme? What does this passage tell us about God? And most important, that last question, how does this passage look through the lens of Jesus Christ? Why? Because all, all the book of the Bible, every part of the Bible points toward Jesus. So even if you're reading the Old Testament where the name Jesus doesn't even happen, not with regard to Jesus Christ. But if you're reading in the law, or you're reading in the Psalms, or you're reading in the prophets, and you, 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 in addition to doing all the historical, the literary, the contextual, the cultural study, a theological study will, will cause us to look at this passage, and before we come to grips with what we think it says, we have to stop and say, okay, now how would Jesus view this? And how am I to understand this through the lens of what Jesus did and said in the gospel. You know one of the problems in our world? And it's a problem among Christians only. You ready for this? There are a lot of Christians who love the Bible more than they love Jesus. I said respect the Bible, read the Bible, study the Bible, apply the Bible. I did not say worship the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to worship the Bible. We're told to respect the Bible, but we're never told to worship the Bible. Worship is a word that should only be reserved for one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. 
The Bible should be respected because it points us to Jesus, but to worship the Bible like so many people do and to like the Bible better than they like Jesus, like so many of us Christians do, is a form of idolatry. Idolatry, no matter what you're worshiping, outside of God is wrong. How does that passage look through the lens of Jesus? I'll tell you what what will happen when you look at any passage through the lens of Jesus. He will add grace to it and mercy to it and compassion to it and love to it that may may not be there on the surface. Well, Amanda and I bought several Christmas presents for our grandbaby this year. We bought a bunch of them. We got a little carried away. Uh, and so, so carried away that we're having to keep some of them at our house. I hate that very much because that means they're going to have to bring her to our house to play with them. That's just terrible. We wanted to get her a new car and an iPhone, but Zach and McCole would not allow us to do that. So we had to settle for some smaller gifts like a Cabbage Patch doll. Bellamy sits in a car seat in the back seat of their, their vehicles. And it's one of those car seats that... Uh, Number one, car seats like what she sits in cost way more than they ought to. Number two, they are more secure than what uh, Neil Armstrong had in the spacecraft in Apollo 11. They're amazing. But she, she sits in it. She's fastened to it. She can't move. It's got like padding all the way around. And she's facing the rear because now you have to put them facing the rear. But Zach and McCole put a little mirror up here. So when she's seated in the back seat facing the rear, she can see herself. Now, it's a wide-angle mirror, so she can also see her mom and dad, but she's looking at herself, and she started looking at herself and going, Bibi? Bibi! <laughs> and so she, she starts calling things baby. So we wanted to get her a baby. We got our Cabbage Patch doll. This Cabbage Patch doll came with a stroller and a crib. And we couldn't wait to get it back home. The only problem is, and this was a problem I I should have checked into before we paid for it, it had to be assembled. Now, the stroller, strollers are complex things. And so I just knew that in order to put that stroller together, I was going to have to read the instructions, right? So I pull out the instructions, and it's a good thing I did because two hours later, having read the instructions, I had the stroller together. It was good. It was good. Now, the crib came in five pieces, five large pieces, and and there were no screws. There were no nails. It didn't require any tools. All I had to do was to snap them together, right? And I'm thinking, I'm a smart guy. I don't need the instructions to put five pieces of plastic snapped together. And so I laid the, the instructions in the box to throw away. And I start snapping pieces together. There are only five pieces of this thing. There's a headboard, a footboard, there are two sides, and there's the bed. And so I start putting these things together. I had two pieces put together, and when I tried to snap the third piece, the third of five pieces on, it wouldn't snap on. I couldn't get it on. I have a doctor's degree and I couldn't get them together. And my wife, who was within shouting distance of me, but not in the same room, I knew 
that she would make fun of me for not being able to put together a five-piece plastic crib that snaps together. And so I didn't want her to know that I couldn't do it. 45 minutes later, I had to pull apart the two pieces that I had put together and rummage through the box to find the instructions. And with the instructions in hand, I put the pieces together in the order they were supposed to be put together. And I got it put together in five minutes. It helps to read the instructions. What I'm saying to you this morning is, if you want to reboot, reset, restart, start your life anew this year, this is a good time to do it with the passing of another year and the beginning of a new one. If you want to do it, start with the instructions and study them. But don't be like me and don't be like so many other people I know. I can put this together without the instructions. Because you won't. You'll make a mess. And it'll cost you time. <laughs> Let's pray. We're so grateful to you, Lord, for your word. We don't worship your word, but we do respect your word because it is your word and it points us to Jesus. And it gives us guidelines for our lives. But we want to do more than just respect it. And we even want to do more than just read it. We want to study it. We want to accurately understand what you said through it so that we can correctly apply your word to our lives. Because we all want better lives than what we've had. We love you, Lord. And the fact that you've spoken to us through your word... <laughs> The fact that you've even spoken to us is just so amazing. Thank you so much. And Lord, we know that your word points us to you, points us to Jesus. And there are folks here in this room who've never invited Jesus to be their Savior. Your word was written for them. And I pray that someone would come and invite you into their lives to be Savior and Lord. But Lord, your word also teaches us not only how to be saved, but how to live once we are saved. And so from time to time, you call us to rededicate ourselves to you. We'll probably have to do it a million times in a lifetime. It's okay. It's just being obedient to you. I pray that people would restart the process of starting. In Jesus' name, amen.